I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the seventh chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 7 will be our text this Lord's Day. And as you turn there, I just want to mention to you, uh, we have these baby bottles. So we do this campaign each year for the New Life Center. It's a way to raise support and raise awareness uh, for the great ministry they have and the work they do. Uh, these are available in the lobby. You can just take this home and put your spare change in it or cash in it or checks in it. Uh, and then we will return those to the New Life Center. So once you have filled this up, you can just bring it back to church and we'll make sure it goes over there. So I want to remind you to pick one of those up, as many of you already have. And now, uh, hopefully you found your way to the seventh chapter of Luke, where we're going to pick back up on our study of Luke's gospel. And if you've been with us through this study, you know that uh, Luke began his gospel uh, not with the pronouncement of the birth of Jesus, but with the pronouncement of the birth of John the Baptist. In fact, in those early chapters of Luke's gospel, uh, John the Baptist really was a, a central figure there as he was the last of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant prophets, who was preparing the way for the Lord. And we left off on his story a few chapters back where he was there at the Jordan River calling people to repentance, uh, warning them to flee the wrath of God that was to come. And he tied that wrath in with the coming of the Messiah and with Jesus, who he describes as one coming uh, with a, a winnowing fork in his hand. He was going to clear the threshing floor. He was going to separate the wheat from the chaff. There would be unquenchable fire, John said, that would come with the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we know that soon after this, John was imprisoned for proclaiming the truth and for proclaiming righteousness, and specifically for calling out Herod and his wickedness. Uh, Herod had taken his brother's bride to be his bride, and John had confronted this gross immorality, and now John is in prison, and he will soon be beheaded. And so we pick back up in his story now in the seventh chapter of Luke's gospel. We're going to pick up there in verse 18 and go through verse 35 this morning. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand as I read for us the word of God. And this is what Dr. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. But what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too. They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say, he has a demon. The Son of God has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children you would pray with me. Father, wisdom is indeed justified by her children. And we see the fruit of wisdom in our lives if we indeed do believe you at your word. If we trust what you say, if we walk by faith and not by sight. And yet that is very difficult when we find ourselves in times of despair times of discouragement, times of doubt, when we find ourselves like John locked up in a prison cell for standing on the truth of the gospel. So Father, help us to reconcile these things. Help us to understand how we should indeed respond in our doubts and in our discouragements. And help us, Lord, to hold fast to the gospel of truth today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As soon as I began to study this passage and think about where we find John here locked in this prison cell, immediately my mind went to a book that I have shared about with you often, a classic in the Christian faith, The, the Pilgrim's Progress, written by 17th century Puritan preacher John Bunyan. Uh, John Bunyan, as you may know, he spent a number of his own years locked in a prison cell, also for proclaiming the truth. Uh, He spent 12 years at one point locked up, and during those years, he faced great despair and discouragement. Uh, Not long before that, he had faced discouragement as the wife, uh, his wife and the mother of his four children, one of which was blind, uh, she had died. He later then was remarried, and he and his new wife were expecting their first child when Bunyan was arrested and imprisoned, and that child would die at childbirth. During these years, he would suffer greatly, and he would struggle, and he would wrestle with his faith. He'd wrestle with the reality that here he was taking a stand for the truth of God, and yet he was locked in a prison cell 
watching from a distance as his family would suffer. But God would use this time of suffering greatly in his life. We benefit from it today because it's then that he wrote many of his great works. Most of Pilgrim's Progress was written during that time in prison. If you're not familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, it is an allegory of the Christian faith. It follows a pilgrim named Christian as he goes from his home city, the city of destruction, and he journeys to the celestial city. It describes what it is for us as believers to go through the Christian life, the struggles that we face. And one of those struggles that is very evident in Christian's life in Pilgrim's Progress is his wrestle with despair, literally because there is a giant named Despair who at one point takes him and a friend on their journey. He takes them and locks them into a castle that's referred to as Doubting Castle, and there he abuses them greatly. They began to wonder and they began to struggle, and in their struggle, they turn to the Lord in prayer, wondering if they will ever escape their captor despair, find their way out of Doubting Castle, and after praying, a Christian remembers something. He remembers that long before in his journey, when he's standing at the cross, when his burden is taken off of him, that he had been given a key, a key called promise. He reaches into his pocket, he takes out the key, and sure enough, the key unlocks that dungeon door. He then finds his way out of Daddon Castle. Each time he comes to a lock, he is able to open it with the key of promise. And Bunyan even describes the, the last lock he approaches, the, the last thing he needs to get through to get back on his journey to the Westfield City. talks about very vividly how it's harder to unlock that lock, but eventually it opens and Christian and Hopeful find their way back on their journey. We see in this picture that Bunyan puts before us that the struggles that we have and how many times we feel that we too are locked up in Doubting Castle, struggling with the giant of despair. This is something that John Bunyan knew well of, which is why he wrote it, and it's something that I believe we find John the Baptist dealing with in this passage. I believe at this point he is indeed wrestling with despair, and discouragement, and even doubts. I believe for many of us, if we're honest, we wrestle with these same things. And so I hope and pray that we find encouragement in this passage today as we look and see how it is that John the Baptist deals with these doubts and how Jesus ministers to him in the midst of his despair and doubt. And so we'll begin with the first observation that's there before you in your outline that we find in this passage. Number one, we see that Christians often struggle with despair, and with doubt. Christians often struggle with despair and doubt. You are not unspiritual this morning. You find yourself doubting at times. And it's important that we distinguish when we say doubt, we are not talking about unbelief. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. In fact, one commentator I read said it very clearly this way, Doubt is a matter of the mind and emotions when we cannot understand what God is doing or why He's doing it. But unbelief is a matter of the will. The will that refuses to believe God's Word no matter what He says or does. And we find in Jesus' ministry at times, He encounters great unbelief. In fact, 
Some of that is mentioned in today's passage among the Pharisees, those who refuse to repent, they refuse to believe. They are filled with unbelief. And at other times, we find Jesus encountering people who, who believe and yet they doubt, they struggle. And I think that's exactly where we find John today. And so again, what we read here, Luke tells us, beginning in verse 18, is that John's disciples, who while he's in prison, they're able to have access to him in some way and to share the news with him of what's taking place. It says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. Well, all these things, Luke is likely referring to the things he just recorded in his gospel account. And so they would have gone to John the Baptist and John who is there awaiting his own execution would be very curious to hear about the ministry of the Messiah, the one who was coming literally to clean house, to clear the threshing floor, to bring this unquenchable fire of judgment on God's people. And here he is locked up for preaching these very things. And so you can imagine he, he wants to know how that's going. And so his disciples, they come to him and they talk to him about the Sermon on the Plain and the things that Jesus is preaching and how after that he, he journeyed to a city and, and he healed the servant of a centurion. Now, that might be a curious thing for John. A John who was locked up in prison by Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch who would have had authority over the centurions and here he is suffering and hearing that Jesus is out, not calling down fire on Herod, not clearing this threshing floor in the way he thought, but he's actually out there with a ministry of mercy and compassion, and he has just healed the servant of one who serves his oppressor. From there, they would have likely recounted what we just looked at in Luke 7, how Jesus and those following him, his disciples, this great crowd, they had come to the town of Nain, this very small, seemingly insignificant town. They had met this funeral procession coming out of the town, and Jesus had compassion on this widow who had now lost her only son. They touched the casket and how this son was raised from the dead. Perhaps John would have had questions about this. Well, what about her faith? We don't know if she has any. <laughs> well, what? what about judgment? What about the unquenchable fire? What about these things? And so you can imagine as these reports come to John, as he's putting these things together, I think he's likely struggling. Especially struggling with what I think many of us struggle with when, when God doesn't do what we thought He was going to do. I mean, again, John was proclaiming to a wicked generation that judgment was coming, and yet at this point, it seems that no judgment has come. I mean, do you ever find yourself in a situation like that? You look around the world today, you look around at the wickedness today, and you wonder, Lord, how much longer, how much more, how much worse can it get? And then you find yourself looking at the wicked who seem to be prospering. <laughs> it seems that they're blessed. And you look in your own life and the life of other brothers and sisters in the faith and you see them struggling. And these things don't seem to add up. 
And we begin to wrestle with these questions. God, are you indeed who you say you are? And perhaps we don't wrestle with that. Perhaps we, we, we know God indeed is love and He's a loving God. We just wonder if He loves us. When we know His Word says He's good and He's compassionate and He's merciful, we just wrestle with if He's those things to us. Because in our circumstances, in our prison cell, locked up in Doubting Castle, we, we don't feel that way sometimes. And, and so I think these are the things that are going through John's mind and that he perhaps is wrestling with that lead him to prompt and ask this question of his two disciples who he sends to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In other words, according to John's script that he had before him, this isn't how I thought it was going to play out. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was off. Maybe I missed something here. Maybe, maybe Jesus, who I believe to be the Messiah, maybe there's somebody else coming because I'm still in this cell. He's wrestling with things that so often we wrestle with. But I think where we see Jesus soon commending John, I think one of the reasons he commends him is because notice where he goes to with his wrestle and with his doubts and with his despair. He goes to Jesus. Now, his imprisonment keep him physically from going to Jesus, but, but that's where he goes. That's where he sends his disciples. That's, that's where he takes his questions. And friends, that's where we need to go as well. In our despair, in our discouragement, in our doubts, we need to go to Jesus. Because notice what we see here. The second observation there before you. We see that holding fast to God's Word is the key to dealing with despair and doubt. Just like that allegory that Bunyan puts before us of, of Christian remembering the key of promise and that key of promise unlocking his captivity and getting him back on the path to the celestial city, we are reminded here that the key to our struggles and our doubts and our despair is to hold fast to the Word of God. And so, notice what happens. These disciples, they go to Jesus and they ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, the way the passage reads, it can be a little unclear, but I think perhaps what's happening here is that they come upon Jesus while He is actively ministering. While there is a crowd gathering. While he is doing all these things that he's going to say he's done, he's healing the sick, he's restoring sight to the blind, he is working a ministry of compassion and mercy and miracles. And two of John's disciples come up as this ministry is taking place, and seemingly they interrupt what he's doing to say, we've got a question from John. Are you the one, or should we wait for another? And what appears to happen here is that Jesus just keeps ministering. Verse 21, in that hour. So as they're asking this question, He healed people of many diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, He bestowed sight. And so you can kind of picture this. I mean, here's Jesus healing a blind person. 
And here's these two guys in his ear. Hey, Jesus, what are, are you the one? And he's doing things that only the one can do. <laughs> he said, just, I'll get to you in a minute. And then he gets to him. He, he, he deals with these doubts after he does this ministry. It's as if he's saying, just take a moment and watch. You know, sometimes in our doubts and our despair and our discouragement, we don't just stop and take a moment to see and to savor what God has done, what He is doing, what He will do. We can get so focused on our circumstances that they're the lens through which we view everything. And when you're discouraged and when you're in despair and when you're in the pit, then, then everything gets viewed through that lens. And sometimes we need to take those glasses off for a moment. And we need to just come to the Word with fresh eyes to see and to savor the great things God is doing. And so here, Jesus is actively doing this ministry and they're asking these questions and He, he pauses them for a moment. And he, he does what it is that He's come to do. And then verse 22, he turns and says, go tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. Now just, just an observation before we walk through these things and how they fulfill the Scripture. Jesus doesn't condemn John for having doubts here. I mean, he doesn't turn to the disciples of John and say, go tell John to get over it. Go, go tell John, just, just believe. You, you've heard everything you need to hear. You've seen everything you need to see. Some people are going to suffer. How dare you doubt me? The, the compassion, the mercy that we see from Jesus and healing the centurion's servant is the same compassion and mercy we see from Jesus and how He responds to John. God can handle your doubts. God can handle your despair and mine. But sometimes we have this, this mindset that, that somehow we've, we've got to play pretend even before our Creator God, as if He doesn't know what's in our hearts. He knows. Jesus knows. And He's, he's compassionate. He, he doesn't condemn John. And in fact, what He does to John and to His disciples is He says, reach in your pocket and hold on to the key. And let me show you how, how God's promises, how, how everything that was promised about me, let me show you how these things are coming to fruition and remind you that every promise made will come to fruition. Just a few from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. This is a prophetic word about the One who was to come. Jesus fulfills it. Isaiah 29, beginning in verse 18. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. A prophetic word about the Messiah that Jesus here fulfills. 
Isaiah 35, beginning in verse 5. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Another prophetic word about the Messiah that Jesus here has fulfilled. Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. A prophetic word about the Messiah. There are over 200 references like this in the Old Testament. And everyone that can be fulfilled has been fulfilled. And everyone that's yet to be fulfilled, like the return of Jesus, will be fulfilled. Jesus here in response to this question, are you the one or shall we look for the another, is a resounding, I am the one, John. Hold on to the key. And look to the promise. And friends, that's the same word for us today. You might find yourself right now wrestling and struggling and wondering, God, are You really the one? I staked everything on this. Is this true? Are You really coming back? Is there really this kingdom to come? Do You really have good things for those who love You? And God's Word reminds us over and over and over again, yes. So that in those moments when we feel alone and isolated and abandoned, we might reach in our pocket, take out that key, and remember the hope that the writer of Hebrews tells us to have. That reminder that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. So that when we feel abandoned and when we feel forsaken, we might hold on to that key and remember we're not. That our circumstances don't dictate our faith or the truth of God's Word. God's Word should dictate then our faith. Philippians 1, that Jesus will indeed bring to completion the work that He has begun in us. Even when we feel like that work's never going to come to completion. Over and over and over again, God's Word reminds us of the truth. And that is what we need in our times of despair and discouragement. I have found myself in this very place many times. And I've shared with many of you from Lamentations chapter 3 because this is the key that I've kept in my pocket that God has used in my life on many occasions. Perhaps He'll use it in yours this morning. In Lamentations 3, and I, I won't read the whole chapter, but you can read it later this Lord's Day, you find the prophet Jeremiah struggling and wrestling with despair and discouragement to the point that he says he feels like God is a bear hiding around the corner waiting to pounce on him and rip him to pieces. I mean, that's as raw as you can get. He's so discouraged. He feels like he is chewing on gravel, he says. And just when things can't get worse, he says they keep getting worse to the point that he feels like the most afflicted person who's ever lived. Filled with despair. Overcome by discouragement. Wrestling with doubts. And throughout Lamentations 3, he goes over and over this sense of being alone, of being abandoned, of feeling stricken by the Lord. How he points the finger at God. You have driven me to this place, God. You don't, I don't feel like you have anything good for me. 
But then he writes this. His, his cry of despair, it turns to a prayer. So that in verse 19 of chapter 3 of Lamentations, he says this, Lord, remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it and has bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. He reaches in his pocket, he takes out the key and he says this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Nowhere else for us to go. There's nothing else for us to do. We've exhausted every resource. We've tried everything. And we're struggling. And we're fighting just to press on. And God says, Pilgrim, reach in your pocket. And take out the key and remember, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So if you went to bed last night filled with discouragement, if you barely left, slept last night overwhelmed with despair, you woke up to the new mercies of Christ today. And you've gathered with God's people today so that we might say to one another, great is His faithfulness. Great is His mercy. And, and that's crazy talk to the world who sees us in a dungeon at times suffering. And yet in our suffering, we can sing for joy. And we can remember because the great truth of God's Word reminds us of these things. And this world is not our home. And there's a day of victory coming. So God says, do not lose hope. Jesus says it this way. Back to Luke 7, verse 23. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And believe, I believe what He's basically saying there to John is, don't lose hope and don't give up. <laughs> don't be offended, John. That I'm not doing exactly what you thought I was going to do. I am the one. Everything I said would happen will happen. Hold on and hold fast. Don't be offended by me. And then the third observation, number three. What we see now Jesus does is He, he commends John the doubter and He condemns those who deny Him. And so at this point, John's disciples leave. <laughs> That's all they needed. Now they go back, they give this report to John, but then Jesus turns, because remember, all this is taking place in front of a, a lot of people. And so you can just you know, kind of picture the scene here. There, here's a, a family who's brought their blind child, and Jesus has restored sight to their blind child, and yet when this is taking place, the greatest day of their lives, they hear these other two guys who are talking about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah or not. Well, who were they? Well, they're, they're disciples of John. Well, I thought John believed this. Well, maybe he does. And so John's doubts are likely being talked about among this crowd. And so Jesus here, he, he settles it. So no, no. He commends John. 
In fact, he reminds the people why they went out to hear John in the first place, suggesting that there were many there who had gone to be baptized by John. He says, well, what did you go out there to see? A a reed shaken by the wind, something just flimsy and tossed here and there? No, that's not John. What would you go out to see? A a guy dressed in in these fine, soft, extravagant clothes? Well, that's that's certainly not John. (laughs) You went out to hear a word from God. You went out to see the prophet of God. And and he commends John, the the last prophet of the old covenant. There's never been anybody like him. He talks about his greatness. But, But then he says this, which might seem peculiar to some of them. He says, yet, as great as John is, the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So that, that means that, that, that we today might be considered greater than John the Baptist. Why is that? Is that because we can sit here this morning and say, well, yes, I never doubted God. I've never struggled with despair. I can't believe John did that. Well, I believe it's because of what God's Word tells us over and over again. John 20, beginning verse 27, then Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here. This is the resurrected Christ. See my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've, not, because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John would lose his head before Jesus would go to the cross. He would not be in that prison cell and receive the report of the risen Christ. He would be in glory (laughs) and receive that report. John had faith, but what God says to us is, look, we, we, have, we have the full word. We have the whole story. It's right here in front of us. And while we've not seen the things that John saw, he said, blessed are you who've not seen and have faith. And pronouncing his blessing on John, he pronounces his blessing on us who may struggle today, who might be discouraged today, who might face despair today. And he says, hold on, stand fast. And blessed are you for the faith you have in your struggle and your trial and your despair. He he commends this kind of faith. And at the same time, he, He has a word of condemnation of judgment on those who don't have this faith. Luke tells us parenthetically here in verse 29, when all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. And Luke here is making a clear distinction between those who have believed and repented and those who have not. And so here we're not, we're not talking about, well, here's some that doubted, here's some who didn't. We're talking about people who trusted in the purpose of God, in the plan of God, they believed and they responded and repented. And those who didn't, they, they refused to believe. They refused to repent. 
And they rejected the Messiah. Like so many reject Him today. And then Jesus gives this comparison, this illustration of those who reject Him. He says, you're like children who are playing a game. You're like kids in the marketplace who say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. But this is the picture here. You know, children in Jesus' day, they, they, they played games and they basically mimicked things that they saw. They, they played pretend like kids play today. And here the picture is the pretend they're playing is they're, they're playing pretend of some type of celebration like a wedding. Let's, let's play wedding. I'm going to play the flute. You dance. And then they're playing pretend of something else they would have observed commonly in the marketplace of, of a mourning, bereaving funeral procession like the one that we looked at last Lord's Day. So we're, we're singing these songs of lament. You be sad. Maybe these aren't the games your kids play. I don't know that my kids ever played funeral. But, but, but have you ever come upon a child who's playing pretend and invites you to play and seen their response when you don't? <laughs> I've got a tea party and I got a place for you and I need you to sit down. I got your tea here and you know, there's stuff going, you just can't. And I, you know, your kids I'm sure were much better than mine and they probably said, oh, okay, you can't play right now. I'll just, you know, later on. And then maybe some of your kids, it was like, The world has ended because you won't drink fake tea out of a cup. I mean, that's where I would be. There's nothing in the cup. I got to do stuff. But children, they respond like children. And while Jesus at times, He commends a childlike faith, here He is condemning a childishness among the Pharisees and these other religious leaders. Because what he's saying of them is, you're, you're silly, you're foolish. This is what you're like. You're, you're, you're like a bunch of kids who are demanding everybody do what you tell them to do. And when you don't do what they tell, tell you to do, you just flip out on them. And then he says exactly how this takes place. Because he says, John the Baptist came and he didn't eat bread and he didn't drink wine and you said he has a demon. So you're basically saying to him, John, come on. Hey, if you're one of us, you're really from God, come have a meal with us, feast with us, drink with us, be one of us. John wouldn't have anything to do with it. You remember how John responds to the Pharisees? You brood of vipers who told you to flee the repent to repent and flee the wrath that is to come. John didn't dance. He's got a demon then. So here comes the Messiah. Very different than John. He's feasting. He's gathering with them. He's drinking with them. He, he's out there. Except it's not with them. It's with the sinners. So then they say, oh, what a glutton and a drunkard. <laughs> and they say, you shouldn't be with them, Jesus. You should be with us, Jesus. He doesn't dance with them. He's not dancing for you or I today either, friend. 
and all our demands and all our, well, God, if you really are real, then you better do this. And God, if you want me to do this, you better do this. You can play that song all day long. God doesn't dance for you or for me. He doesn't exist to do our bidding. We exist to do His. And Jesus says, this, this is foolishness. This is what this generation's like. And friends, isn't this generation just like that? Well, I don't believe all that stuff because, you know, because I'm the authority of all things and I'm the God of creation. I mean, isn't that, that what we see everywhere? That the rejection of God, the rejection of the created order, the rejection of everything down to our biology. We refuse to submit ourselves to our Creator. God says this is foolishness. And so while commending John, you, you doubt and you struggle, keep doubting, keep struggling, but hold fast to the truth. At the same time, he gives a word of judgment to those who refuse to believe. These aren't doubts. This is a heart of unbelief. And so in our wrestle today, where, where do we go? Are we on this side of doubting and going to Jesus? Or are we on this side of saying, well, well if you're not going to dance for me, I'm going to do my own thing. We don't have any record after this passage of John sending disciples to ask Jesus any more questions. I think the indication from everything we have in Scripture and in church history is that John received this word and it was sufficient and he took out the key and he held on to it up until the point that they removed his head. He was executed for his faith but I believed in that execution he was likely holding fast to the Word of God that likely came to him through those same disciples who gave that report and perhaps reminded him of the words of Christ on that Sermon on the Plain when he said, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And so their fathers did to the prophets. And John, you're a prophet. And this is coming to you as well. But rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great. And so John endured and he held fast. So did the other John, by the way. <laughs> John Bunyan. And his despair and his discouragement, he held fast to the word of truth. And he wrote about this often, and I'll leave you with this. Not Pilgrim's Progress this time, but from Grace Abounding, the Chief of Sinners, this was essentially Bunyan's spiritual autobiography where he wrote very vividly about his discouragement that would drive him at times to question whether he was even a Christian or not. He said this, I had no sooner begun to recall my experiences of the goodness of God, then there came flooding into my mind the remembrance of a number of sins, especially my coldness of heart, my weariness in doing good, my lack of love for God, His ways, and His people. And along with these sins came this question, are these the fruits of a true Christian? 
I became sick in my inward man and my experiences of God's goodness were taken from my mind as though they never existed. And as I was walking up and down my house in the most dreadful state of mind, the Word of God came to my heart. So Bunyan reaches in, he picks up the key, and he reminds himself of this. You are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24 What a promise, he wrote. And what a turn this made upon me. Oh, what a change it made. Friends, in your discouragement, in your despair, in your dungeon of doubt, remember this. Call this to mind and have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is His faithfulness. If you would pray with me.